This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Okay, this week is a special podcast. For the first time, I'm having multiple guests in a single conversation. Stephanie Barbara Hammer, you'll remember that she is an author of Magical Realism. Check out her new book, Pretend Plumber. We also have Ian McGinnis, who specializes in medieval Scottish history. And Jan Doolittle-Wilson, who specializes in history, gender, and disability studies. Today we are talking about Catelyn's ninth POV chapter. It's such an important chapter, and this chapter more than any other sets up the Red Wedding. If you're looking for my conversation with Steve, that will be published next week. I will also mention that Steve and I will be doing a season one recap of Severance over at Cocoons of Horror, so Search for that wherever you search for podcasts. Here is my conversation with Steph, Jan, and Ian. Hi, everybody. Great to meet you, Jan. Nice Your book looked amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This is nice really to meet you both. exciting for me nice because I love talking with you all. And I just, I think that you might enjoy talking with each other. But that's always sort of a, a risky proposition. <laughs> so many things could go wrong. And I've never had more than one person on this podcast. And I was talking with Sarah earlier today, and I was thinking, you know what? I probably should have, like, tried these things incrementally. Like, maybe, like, <laughs> two people first, and then three. And then try to negotiate four different time zones. Aren't you the one who likes to climb the chaos ladder? I do, but here's what we're going to do. I think we need a more organized approach for this. So. I was just thinking that, Jan, I was thinking about the chaos ladder, too, yeah. and going, hmm, is there room for four on there, right. on those rungs? But that's what's going to make it wonderfully chaotic, I think, right? Just plunge in. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to do. I have three cards. All right. Ooh. So, and they're hearts representing my undying affection. And Steph, you're aces with me. We, I met you first. Oh. And Jan... You're number two, and Ian, you're number three. And so after I do my synopsis, I will just draw one of these cards, and then the floor will be yours. I think, Ian, Ian, in the outline you sent me, you used the term roundtable. And I thought, roundtable sounds so much better than panel discussion. Doesn't oh, sorry, round... sorry, I, thought was, I thought that's what you'd called it. <laughs> Did I say? Well, maybe I'm complimenting myself. <laughs> I saw that. Oh, I like round table. I, that sounds so much better. All right, wonderful. Okay, here's my synopsis. As Catelyn marches south with Rob's army, she wonders if Rob is prepared for what is ahead. 
She hears that several Lannister scouts have been found and killed. She also hears that the Lannisters have bested and cornered her brother's forces. But chief among her worries is the ever-cantankerous Walder Frey. Rob's army needs to cross the river, and the only way over is to negotiate with the Freys, who have held the bridge for 600 years. Rob and company are met by several Frey men who invite the boy lord for supper. This, all agree, is a very bad idea, as Walder Frey could easily use Rob as a trading chip with Tywin. When Kat sees these negotiations are going sour, she steps in and volunteers herself for the task. Then Kat goes to treat with the old pink weasel. Walder Frey, it seems, hates everyone, but he especially hates Tullys and Lannisters and other families that refuse to marry their sons and daughters to the Freys. After a long monologue of grievances, Kat can see what the old man wants. She returns to Rob, informing him that a deal is on the table. They can cross the bridge if the Starks will take several Frey children with them. Included in the deal is a promised marriage between Rob and a Frey girl. Rob agrees, and the army crosses. All right, here we go. And the card is a three. So, Ian, Ian McInnes, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the, you and the group, you and the round table, climb the ladder of chaos? Well, we're, we're, we're discussing how chaotic that might be. Um, yeah, with, with a lot of chaos today. A lot, a lot of chaos. Of chaos. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think one of the themes for me that, that came out of it was, was the theme of, of kind of uh, of loyalty uh, and and faith right. and and lordship, uh, mm. all, all of those things kind of in, intertwined together, and, and the extent to which that's seen and and indeed not loyalty as opposed to what Frey, what Walder Frey is sort of represents. Well, I suppose I mean, I mean Walder might say that he's being as he does to to Caitlin, he's being perfectly loyal to the crown, and ultimately that's where his where his ultimate loyalty should lie, uh, if he thinks that. To be loyal to his lord is to commit treason. Then, then that's not loyalty at all. Surely, that the mm. his his bond to the crown is surely stronger than that to his lord. Although, yeah, in in a medieval sense, that might be <laughs> might be queried. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's I think it speaks to the complexity of it when you have a family or a group of families going up against the crown, and uh, when that group particularly thinks it's been hard done to, and so it it feels that it's justified in the action that it's, it's taking, and then you're you're left to decide which side of your heart and who's right. Is that really the sense you're getting from Frey here? I don't know if he cares about loyalty at all. Oh no, I, I don't think he does. But, but but I think he's he's portraying himself that way. I uh, yeah yeah sure. That, that he's he's at least trying to to suggest that he's walking a kind of or he's trying to walk a kind of middle ground. Yeah. But I think he's also representative or potentially representative of how other families. Uh, are faced with a choice and we know that there are there are those within the stark camp who will be equally problematic you know in in, in chapters and books to come when it comes to that loyalty um, and they may be swayed by by various reasons not least of which is money but um mm -hmm. but 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 there is a political choice we made here and, and Frey, you know phrase out for whatever he can get but 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 he's also faced he's also put in this position where he has to make a choice and then, of course, loyalty is a big deal relative to how Rob is playing politics with the you know different people riding alongside him, gathering information from different folks, 
in a way loyal to showing loyalty to his mother in a way that maybe other lords might not have to worry about well that, that's the thing i mean who are they actually being loyal to are they being loyal to rob are they there because they're loyal to his father um I, 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 or or does caitlin actually have a greater role to play in all this than is perhaps recognized or, or seen you know are they actually loyal to her because she's effectively representing her husband mm. um you know it's it's who is that loyalty to and, and 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 what is it based on it's based on the personal relationship between between them and ned um but these men hardly any of them will have a a, a relationship with rob they'll probably know uh, caitlin being you know the lady of winterfell far more than they know they know rob so actually right that loyalty may be to her as an extension of her husband rather than to her son. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking a lot about loyalty too. I mean, clearly that's, you know, the major theme here of, of the chapter and, and in many ways the book, right? Because trying to figure out who is loyal to whom and what loyalty is the strongest. Mm. You know, I kept thinking as I was rereading the chapter, divided loyalties, right? There are lots of different kinds of loyalties, Mm. even among, you know, the same members of the house, even within one individual. And so, you know, I think Ian, you're right. When you take a look at somebody like Frey, you know, he is clearly somebody who really is just loyal to his own interests. That's kind of how you can figure him out, right? He will do, he will basically fall in with whomever he can get the most advantage from. Um, which I think obviously makes him super dangerous, you know, among other characters who kind of do the same thing. One thing I wrote in my notes is never trust or make an alliance with somebody who feels like they have been slighted by you. And I think there are several characters that they make these alliances with that then comes back to haunt them, obviously. And it's not just Frey, it's, you know, Theon, obviously, Littlefinger. But then I was also thinking about Kat's position as well as Rob's position and what different loyalties do they try to um, honor, but they can't do it all. And this is a big part of the problem, right? So just in my notes, I put down, you know, Kat is faced with, do I go home to Bran? Do I tend to my son? Do I protect my children in the North? Or do I stay with Rob? Mm -hmm. That's a a really big decision that she has to face. Um, Of course, her loyalty is, Rob, we have to go rescue the girls. This is a driving force for her. You know, that has to be our top priority. And then Rob's in a position later on where is it going to get the girls giving up a key hostage in that attempt? Or is it sticking with the larger objective, Mm. right? Um, And then, of course, Kat makes that fateful decision later on not to get into later chapters. But where is her loyalty? Is it to, again, getting the girls back? Or is it remaining loyal to Rob and following his orders, so all of these little things that are threaded um, really from the beginning of the book, and, and certainly you see evidence of this abundantly in this chapter, really has to do with this idea of where will, will my loyalties fall? Mm-hmm. Reading this chapter for the, I don't know, third time, I really enjoyed the conversation between Frey and Caitlin. That's really the that's the piece that really excited me. Um, as a as a novelist who writes very short books, I'm in awe of Martin's ability to write these huge books with these characters who are very detailedly drawn. And um, 
I'm particularly impressed by that discussion and at phrase, um, as you put it, Anthony, this list of slights that goes <laughs> on for quite a long time. It's more than a page that are very detailed, very specific. Yeah. And on one hand, I'm struck by how he, he's a villain, of course, but how human he is and how we recognize that that feeling of being slighted. Um, we've all been slighted at some point in our in our past, and perhaps we have our own list of slights. Um, I certainly do. And uh, I love how he's uh, treacherous and worrisome, but also completely human. Yeah. And the outline of those slights makes him at least for a moment, if not sympathetic, then certainly relatable. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other sort of piece to that, that I really admire is that he is telling Caitlin this in private, which means that he feels comfortable talking to her in a in a way that he doesn't necessarily yeah. talk. He's much gruffer in the public part of that uh-huh. conversation. And that speaks to her incredible abilities as a diplomat. Absolutely. She's able to be very aggressive with him. We want a cross and you swore an oath to my father and all of this. But then she's also be able to be able to create enough safety that he can say, well, yeah, it's loyalty. Yeah, it's money. But it's also I'm really hurt and pissed off about all these things that your family has done. So there's a human side, I guess, to the um, the issues that you've been outlining, Ian, in terms of how families behave in the Middle Ages and what what about divided loyalties, Jan? There's also this, I, Walter Frey, feel, I'm going to use a Yiddish word, belightish. I feel hurt. I feel hurt. I feel hurt. I feel humiliated. And I feel safe enough to tell you, Caitlin, about this so you can maybe fix this. And that's the amazing, for me, um, just the amazing part of this chapter. She's almost the perfect person to negotiate because... What does Walter Frey really want? He want he's been sitting there waiting, waiting for decades upon decades <laughs> to get back at the Tullys, right? <laughs> he doesn't really care about the Starks. <laughs> he really doesn't care. So uh so here's Kat, she comes in, aha, finally I'm going to exact my toll from one of these Tullys who thinks that they're better than I am, right? So he really wants he really wants his vengeance in in a you know sort of a a very mundane way if you think yeah. about it but he wants vengeance against the tolly family and of course cat represents the tollys in, in this conversation so in addition to sort of being savvy enough to let walder be high and mighty when he needs to be high and mighty she's also smart enough to know now, I don't just represent the Starks here. I represent the Tullys, and I know what he wants. And I can give it to him, right? And she has the authority. As the mother, Right. she has the authority to give a thumbs up on these marriage arrangements, right? Yeah, because I mean, it would normally be, oftentimes it is the mother that's involved um, yeah. in, in negotiating these things. It's not just, it's not just the, the father that's involved 
on indeed that the mother may be involved in arranging and then arranging the actual ceremony and things so mm -hmm. there is a there is often a heavy female and motherly component in that now the other thing i was just going to say was though i, I think though in that representation of of caitlin um that that, that you can see that that she's not a start or she's not she she is different to ned because uh, i think ned would take the more practical <laughs> line that it, you know Frey should be loyal or not Frey, Frey should 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 do as i tell him to do or i'll pull his castle down and, and i think you, you can kind of see that in rob and perhaps what you're seeing in caitlin is is the the other the other route that, that she has a bit more practicality to it. and ultimately Ned's rather old-fashioned view of things is what leads to his downfall. Caitlin is far more practical in that sense, and I suppose it's the extent then to which she passes that on to her children, not just her sons, um, because I, I think in the in the shape of her daughters as well as the story will play out. I think that's quite important. Hmm. Hmm. All right. So I'm going to draw another card, and we have ourselves an ace. And that's you, staff. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, gosh, I am torn between character and plot. So um, let me let me go with character because something again that I noticed on this reread was the um, role of Theon in mm. the early sections of the chapter, and I was interested. Again, Martin is so good at very efficiently creating these contrasts. Uh, I was fascinated yeah. by the contrast between Caitlin's reactions and behavior yeah. and Theon's. And uh, Theon, who is smirking all the time and is speaking in this cocky way about these life and death situations. Yeah, I think that he's described at one point as easy confidence. Easy confidence. And it seems so jarring and so it's so misplaced when you've got the you're trying to move these vast armies and it, we're in this drastic situation of having to try to negotiate to cross this river. And there he is going, oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. Oh, the ravens have already been taken care of, of course. And we'll show him and and I'll bring you some I'll bring you some feathers for a hat. He makes some comment to, <laughs> sure. to Caitlin. And it's just it's. It, I, I just love him. And of course, those of us who, who've read the books know what, what is in store for him. As a character, he functions so beautifully to throw into relief the statescraft of Caitlin. That's right. That's that right. she's saying, no, that's not right. No, it's more complicated than that. It's this, it's this, it's this. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's really kind of if you think of Rob as sort of the the cartoon character with the devil on one shoulder and the the angel on the other yeah, shoulder. Yeah. You know, like Theon's basically on one shoulder saying, "Hey, just tear the tear it down. Just you've got the bigger army." But use it. Use the bigger army. Of course, I think Theon thinks that his aspirations are improved the sooner the Starks go to war. Mm. But, of course, you don't know that about him, right, at, at this point. Um, and, of course, Caitlin's on the other shoulder saying, hmm, maybe words, not swords, in this case. Right. Um, Martin doesn't often do monologues. At least in this book, he doesn't do monologues. It's normally these short, pith- you know, think of anything that Tyrion says or think of like the the pithy wisdom of Ned Stark or, you know, the sort of the coy idiom that Varys will throw in or something. Not a lot of monologues, but F- Walder Frey gets at least two solid pages of, of monologue right. in this. And I wonder, as an author... Are you aware of the such things like this person's got too many words? Can I convey this idea for this character in a different way? That's such a great question. And that actually leads me into thinking about some of the of the sort of plot construction of this chapter. So thank you for that. That this is actually a very talky chapter. There's a lot. It's all conversations. And Martin is such a skilled storyteller that he's able to make those conversations feel very dynamic. And he does that, it seems to me, in the first part, by having all this camping and decampment and horseback riding going on during these various conversations. And he doesn't describe that really. He just has a sentence every once in a while. They broke camp the next morning. Uh, somebody gets off his horse and then Kate, uh, Caitlin Catlin, I think I'm making her a Californian <laughs> by calling her Caitlin. So apologies for that. Catlin, uh, at a certain point at, at the end of her teaching moment with Rob gallops off and you realize, oh, they've been riding this whole time. Right. So there's a kind of, he brilliantly reminds us very quickly that they're moving all the time. Hmm. This conversation is they're not at a round table like us. They're right. on the road. They're 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 putting up tents. They're taking things down. And um, he's able Martin is able to fe- create a similar feeling of dynamism. In the Frey um, Catlin conversation, and I don't know how he does that. Um, I think it's the power of the voice. And again, this is sort of this is something that that as a creative writer, I always am struggling towards this. Can I get the voice right? Because if you can get the voice right, Mm. you can go for a page and a half. Right. I mean, Hamlet's soliloquies, they work because Hamlet's voice is amazing. And we're just like, okay, speak the speech. I pray you. Yeah. Yeah. Just tell me, tell me what you're going to do. And that Frey monologue, it is indeed a monologue is so powerful. I think because it's so personal and so specific you know, this yeah. happened and and then this happened with, you know, my, the you know, this daughter and this son. And I at one point he said, I forget which son that was because he's got so many of right. them. But I think it's this one. And the power of that voice is, I think, what carries us through. So long answer to your question, but I really appreciate that. Question. Yeah. And I think it's necessary because so much of what makes that character work 
is this sense that he has been slighted so often. And you get that sense, like he's got all the power in the room, but he feels so insecure. Like Uh. no one is going to stroke this guy's ego nobody and it just all cat just uh, just can be that little salve to these many wounds that he has developed over the years i don't know if other folks felt this and i'd be curious to know what you thought ian and what you thought jan but when i read this that monologue again i thought he's that kid in the class that no one likes (laughs) yes yes i i kept thinking stephanie again as i was rereading be careful how you treat people who are so-called inferior to you, right? Because I think there are several times the characters who are in greater positions of power really underestimate the the power itself of grievance, right? We keep coming back to that word, but I I was with you when I when I read through that passage, I kept thinking he is telling her pretty much everything she needs to know. And that long list of grievances, right? I will just put it out here and tell you exactly how I feel. My children weren't good enough, you know, for the errands and the tollies. I mean, he just goes on and Mm. on. He pretty much tells her everything she needs to know. And it says so much about what motivates him. He really is a person almost completely motivated by a sense that he has been dismissed and ridiculed and overlooked and slighted his entire life. And he, this is his moment, right? Suddenly now you need me mm-hmm. and I'm going to make the most of this because I've got you in my audience and I will hold you captive to my list of grievances. Right. Absolutely. I, yeah, I almost feel like that's a bigger issue that he finally has the audience he was always wanted. Like, like who cares about, he doesn't kind of remember the names of these grandchildren. So who cares who gets sent off where, but he <laughs> wants someone to listen, you know, God damn it. I've been, I've been saving this speech for the last 50 years. And finally, someone's going to sit here and listen to me talk. <laughs> so I think that there's a part of that. And I don't think Rob would be able to be that person for him. He really needs a Tully with power in the room, right? And I suppose ultimately as well, that that sense of grievance will continue, and 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 the, the combination of that, and of course the corner that he's painted Rob into, but by the negotiation of the marriage, is what will be the Stark's downfall ultimately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I think that that's what makes. I mean, look, the chapter is interesting just because of what it's doing in the book. Mm. This is the first chapter that I actually felt like, ah, go get that damn map because, you know, all of these other chapters. I referred to the map several times. <laughs> right. So there's enough on the page that you can like totally get character oriented. But this was the first chapter where I thought I absolutely need a map to figure out what's happening here. There's major pieces moving around. Yeah. So it's important in that way. At the same time, it's impossible to read this chapter without thinking about the Red Wedding, right? So, yeah. So I don't know if that's something we want to talk about. Well, let's say, let's save that just for a little bit. So, Jan, what did you uh, want to talk about today? I have, like I said, I took several notes, but based on Stephanie and Ian, I kind of want to build off what they've been talking about. Because one thing I wrote down, especially when Stephanie was talking, is when people show you who they are, believe them. And it seems that there are so many moments, you know, even in preceding chapters where Catelyn has a great deal of evidence that these are the people 
whom she's dealing with, and yet still, I think, actively chooses to believe the best. There are even times throughout this chapter where she says, I'll just kind of pretend the lie because it's easier to do that than to reckon with the idea that this might be a really, really bad idea, what I'm about to do. Uh, even as she's telling Rob, oh, I will go talk to mm-hmm. Frey. He won't hurt me. Family loyalty will be more important to him. In the back of her mind, she's even thinking, I will just choose to believe that this is true. And yeah. maybe it will be true. Yeah, she says on her lips, it says, he's known me since I was a child. He'll bring me no harm. And then what she doesn't say out loud is, unless there was a prophet involved in bringing me some harm. A prophet. Yeah. She has that dual mind about him. Right. Right. And going back to Ian, you know, you were kind of comparing Catelyn to Ned in terms of how they operate. And I think one thing that the two of them tend to have in common is, again, their belief that people operate in the world according to the kind of same rules that they do. And so, you know, if you think back to the early conversation, very early in the book, where she gets Lysa's letter, Mm. and Ned says to her, oh, you can't really believe what this letter says. Lysa's not in her right mind. Her husband has just died. And she's, oh, no, no. I've known Lysa since I was, you know, a child. And this is what I choose to believe about Lysa. We could talk all day about Littlefinger, right? Kat continues to believe that deep down, you know, Littlefinger may have his flaws, but he's loyal to me. He's always been loyal to me. Here's another person who is living off of a slight, right? Littlefinger has never forgotten how he wanted Kat's hand. And of course, he was defeated in the duel uh, with with Ned's older brother. He has never forgotten that. That's a a big part of his kind of mentality as he goes through uh, the narrative. Yeah. Um, But yet she goes on Littlefinger's word that this is the dagger, right? That belonged to Tyrion that he won at the, at the tourney. She chooses to believe that this information is correct because Littlefinger wouldn't lie to me. Right. So she operates this way a lot throughout the book, choosing to believe that people will do the right thing ultimately, right? That, that family loyalty will win out loyalty to your liege Lord, you know, loyalty mm-hmm. to these bonds that we have established through our pasts and time. And again, these are the kinds of assumptions that prove sometimes disastrously not to be the case. Mm-hmm. I think the, 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 that kind of goes back to in part to what I, what I was stumbling over before. Um, but but I think I think the Starks are portrayed as kind of old fashioned uh, that they have these beliefs that have no place in in a, a modern world in which people couldn't give a rat's ass for, for as Waldo says you know I make lots of oaths doesn't mean I know what I actually said but 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 everyone has that very practical cynical view of the world and Littlefinger is the the obvious example as well um, but everyone largely works that way except for the Starks the Starks still stick to that noble ideal they have very firm ideas of, of loyalty and and chivalry and and all the rest of it and and, and they are they're almost like they're out of step with the rest of society and that's that's how they get sure done in the end because because no one else is playing by the same right. rules there and i wanted to bring up this idea of the red wedding anthony i know you want to maybe reserve that conversation no, let's, but let's have it i just kept thinking and I, I would love to know what others believe about this but i you know so many commentators and and fans and scholars have written so much about that this is the moment right that catlin makes this deal rob agrees to marry a fray daughter 
Mm. Rob then later uh, breaks that pledge and this is what causes the red wedding. I'm not entirely convinced that even if Rob had gone through with his oath, Frey wouldn't have done exactly the same thing. So it kind of goes back to your point, Ian, about they're still operating in this set of circumstances by which if we follow through on what we promise, everybody else will follow through on what mm. they promise. And I'm not convinced that would have been the case, even if Rob had kept his word. It's a good question. What, what do you think about this, Ian? I was going to say, I mean, I think it's it, it's even, it's potentially even worse than that, because it's not just, I mean, free, you kind of expect um, to let you down, I suppose, or, or you know, the audience does. Uh, the, Martin is setting up the, the the starks to fall anyway so there has to be a you know there is a logic to, to free turning his back on them i suppose that the ultimate one in that sequence is bolton, bolton. Uh, it's it's bolton's treachery uh from within that is the key one uh at, at, in regards to the red wedding and, and that's the one they really don't see coming because because he's a loyal bannerman he has sworn his loyalty to the starks he has campaigned with them and all the rest of it, and and so he should be he should be who they can count on, and of course he's the one that literally does stab them in the back, and and yeah, I think that's that's the that's the real killer blow. That's the one they don't see coming. Hmm. Hmm. That's these are great points, you guys, and it's 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 kind of taking me back again to thinking back about the fray monologue, and I guess another little sort of just human piece to this is people if someone has that many grievances. Can you ever fix that? Because <laughs> uh, there's always another grievance. They're they're in grievance mode. So um, I think Jen, your point that you know even if the wed if even if the marriage had gone through because there's always something because for someone like that it can't be fixed not like that. Um, so that betrayal but you know betrayal is 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 in the future one way or another. And I loved um, uh, the the discussion about about. Um, Caitlin and Ned and this kind of old-fashioned view of of nobility and how they're out of step, um, which I hadn't th I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's absolutely right. And um, it sets it explains again a little bit the the brilliance of having the Ned in prison chapter right before the Caitlin chapter, hmm. a kind of. And Martin's great at creating those sort of structural parallelisms. Um, she's not undone yet, but there is, there's a real danger to the old fashioned way. Right. One little thing that I learned in the, this giant encyclopedic world of ice and fire book that came out about 10 years ago. In the North, they take very seriously this idea of guest right. Oh, They're yeah. really, it's yeah. bread and salt and a guest under your roof. That is sacred. It's so sacred that uh, it's a taboo that's as ingrained as, as any other taboo that you'd find. In the South, not so much. Not that not not so much. So Ian, you were nodding vigorously. Did you have something to say on that one? Sorry, no. I was just I was just thinking of where I am, um, and I think that ties into you know that idea of Highland hospitality and uh, that idea you know thinking of like the, the the early modern the massacre in Glencoe, the the McDonald's let the camels in, then feed them and give them a shelter for the night, and and then they 
kill them in their sleep. Um, you know, it, it, it is the thing that is not done. Um, and, and yes, I think that's it. Uh, I think obviously Marshall is using quite a broad historical canvas, um, but, but I think that has particular resonance with, with where I live at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the Red Wedding seems to have a, an analog to a couple of uh, such events in Scotland, right? <laughs> No, and uh, one of the other classic um, uh, examples it's based on is probably the Black Dinner, um, where uh, where James the Second of Scotland is involved in the murder of one of his own nobles, um, stabs him despite despite having invited him in, given him a safe conduct to to, to turn up, uh, and then proceeds to to stab him, and then watches his as his entourage uh, kill uh, the Earl of Douglas and his brother uh, in front of him. Um, so yes, these things do happen, <laughs> and, and you can put all your checks and balances in as much as you want. But but if if somebody has an axe to grind, if somebody gets het up, if there's an argument, if it's done in hot blood, um, you know the, these things can happen. Uh, I think the red wedding is far more premeditated. Um, it, it is it is very yeah. the, the the starts walk into the trap, and and that's it. And I think that's that one's a bit more. Uh, well, maybe a bit less likely to happen, I suppose, historically, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. So I guess the question for me is, why are those stories told? Because is it told to continue to, like, don't trust that clan. That clan's not to be trusted because this is what they did. Or is it told because you say, actually, you're not supposed to trust anyone in the way that we used to. Because people don't really adhere to guess right anymore. Like, what what's the purpose of retelling a story like that? Do you think? I mean, I, I suppose in part it is about memory. It, it is about ensuring that these things are not forgotten. I mean, there are, you know there, there are popular tales that people would say in this in 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 the Highlands that that you know there are still McDonald's who who will not engage with members of the Campbell family, and that's a good few centuries later. Is that is that real? I, I had never heard this before. So, supposedly, supposedly, okay, yes. Right. I, I don't I don't know any off <laughs> offhand, okay. but um, but it, but it is it is talked about in those terms. Um, but no, I mean I, I think it is it is about the betrayal. It is about the the fact that you know the the normal way of doing things has been has been torn up and has been ignored, and mm-hmm. and that that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. And, and you know it, it comes back to the starts again. That idea of this is how society mm-hmm. is, uh, but actually society isn't that way or it doesn't have to be that way these these rules are not rules they're, they're customs and and such things can more easily be broken right and rob really represents kind of that northern sentiment that what's the issue here he's a bannerman to your father this should be easy and then cat responds with well some some men keep their oaths better than others so she's the southern politician in this conversation and she knows that it's not going to work. That, and of course, your point, of course, Ian, was that you know Ruse Bolton is a northerner, and he seems to be the chief betrayer in this event. Um, I wanted to ask, and this is just for anyone. I wanted to ask this question. There's this conversation between Cat and Walder about where the Aran boy was to be fostered, and it's repeated twice. And it's almost like Kat's trying to put this together, and it seems significant to her, but it never seemed significant to me until this read. To think, why does she care about this point? There's so much else going on right now. Why are you sticking on this point, Kat? 
So I'm curious to hear your take on this. I want to know the answer to that too, because I, I, I because I don't know. <laughs> I had to go back and look because it bothered me too, Anthony. I yeah. thought, I know this is important. This is not in here for no reason, yeah. but I don't remember why this is important. And so I scoured back through the book and right. came to the realization that it's Martin's signal to the reader that something's off here, right? What Kat believed to be true is not really true. And that again, some of the people she might've trusted aren't to be trusted. The information she received maybe isn't reliable. And it really points the finger back, right, to, no, no pun intended, to Littlefinger and Lysa and, and what's going on with their relationship. And then, of course, we eventually find out mm -hmm. who murdered John Aaron. It, it really goes back to that very earliest moment in the book where Robert comes to visit at Winterfell. They're in the crypts. He tells Ned, um, you know, I loved John Aaron. I'm devastated he died. I felt it was my responsibility to at least care for his son, young Robert. Mm -hmm. I wanted to send him to Tywin. God forbid, right? But I wanted right. to send him to Tywin to basically make a man out of him is what he implies that, you know, Robert's too soft. He's sickly. Right. I'll send him to Tywin. He'll learn how to be a proper lord. And of course, Lysa grabs Robert and flees for a number of reasons, but partly because she doesn't want the Lannisters to get her son. And she also knows that she's complicit, right? And what's happened mm. to John Aaron. But then she's told by Frey, actually, the boy was going to be sent to Stannis. Right. And so again, it's our first hint that John knew something was up, wanted to protect his son, didn't want his son to go to the Lannisters. He, of course, had found out about the incestuous relationship between Cersei and Jaime. And so to protect his son, he's going to send his son, he's going to get his son out of there send him to Stannis where he thinks his son will be protected. Ah. And so that's how it all start. We don't know any of this yet as, sure. as an audience, but that's our first hint that something happened in Keen's Landing. Something's off with Lysa. Lysa, of yeah. course, you know, Kat visits her for the first time in years at the Vale. Lysa's very different. She's very, seems to be paranoid, extremely overprotective of her son. Doesn't give her soldiers, which is kind of shocking to Kat. Yeah, we're asking you to raise your bannermen, help us wage this war against the Lannisters. And Lysa says, no, we're good. We're, we're staying here. Uh, I need my soldiers to protect sure. my son. Yeah. So there are these little hints throughout that. Why is it so key right. for Lysa to have this kind of protection to the point where she's not going to give her own sister and her own nephew right. the soldiers and men that they need? And it could be that, you know, she she wasn't happy with, anything that was going on in King's Landing anyway. But the second someone said, we're taking your son away, it's like, all right, where's the poison? Because I <laughs> like, I, I didn't like the situation anyway, and I, I'm not really a fan of any of these people, and I, I might not even like my husband that much. The second someone suggests that Sweet Robin goes... <laughs> Somewhere else, she starts to conspire to to end uh, Robert Arn. Yep. So I think that that may be a key motivator for Lysa. And it, it leads to a, maybe a discussion we could have about another huge theme of the chapter and indeed the book, which is, again, never underestimate the determination of a mother to protect her children. Sure, because sure. she will commit the worst crimes <laughs> 
um, to, to preserve those children. And you certainly see that with Lysa, you see it with Kat, you certainly see it with Cersei. Mm -hmm. So, you know, motherhood um, in this world is one, one of the only means of power for women in a society that is very much dominated by men, have sons, have those children, that your, you know, it kind of indirect link um, to the power that your household um, has, or that your husband has, or your king has, mm-hmm. but you mess with those children, right? And, and those women will come back with a vengeance. And so that I kept thinking of that as I was reading this chapter about the decisions that Kat has made and will continue to make mm. to protect her children, mm. uh, really starting with the capture of Tyrion, which we could say is maybe not the best decision in hindsight. Um, all right. Now this is, gets a little prickly. Okay. So, all right. So Kat, we all love Kat, right? We, we all think that she's, she's the best, right? And yet there's something about her making the decision. Well, first she makes a decision. I'm going to support Rob first and foremost, right? Arya is going to have to get the short end of the stick here, right? Arya is going to have to marry a fray boy and move to the twins. This is like a, <laughs> this is hor- this is horrible for Arya, right? But it's but it's what Ned needs. It's what Edmure Tully needs. It's what Rob needs. And so she chooses the men in her life, the well-being of the men in her life, and Arya is sort of the, the the trading chip to do this. But then secondly, she makes the choice for Rob, and it's possible that if, how do I say this, Rob is holding this promise to Walder Frey very lightly because it wasn't his own promise. It was his mother's promise. And I wonder if there's something about that that comes back and and bites Cat in the end because... I think it would be quite harsh to judge her in that sense. Um, because, I mean, they've already sacrificed one daughter for the for the greater good, haven't they? I mean, Santa's already been dispatched off to King's Landing. Um, and that's in part because because Robert wants that, but, but, but it's also to make better connections with uh, with the Crown, but also with the Lannisters and things as well. Um, so, so marrying off Arya is not necessarily that much of a sacrifice it, 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 it it's what needs to be done um i mean surely it's it's uh, back to your original point i think i suppose it's it, it's perhaps rob's marriage is, is the greater sacrifice because he's the heir uh, i mean that's that opens up possibilities for for free interference mm-hmm. in in the north uh down the line uh, and that that's I mean, and that's not to you know not to sell out poor old aria who, who as you say would be would be stuck with a free husband but um but but you know politically speaking, uh, I suppose it's it's the, it's Rob's marriage that is is the greater sacrifice, I suppose, uh, if you think in those terms. Um, and and but but I, again, I think that's it, it makes perfect sense that she does that. I don't. I'm not sure that's. I think it's all Rob's fault. <laughs> it's, Rob, Rob can't keep it in his okay, pants. Okay, yeah, um, no, and, that's and right. That's the reason it all falls apart. That's right. Rob can't keep it in his pants, and I think that that's it's like she's. She's playing all the politics correctly, right? What's her undoing? Her fifteen-year-old son's libido is her undoing, right? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we have seen this coming? You know, this is. 
is this so hard? Is this so hard to to uh, to anticipate here? I it it seems like maybe you know maybe it is. Maybe it's like look, you you do your best, you make the best moves, political moves that you can, and it just you're just not going to be able to hold back the chaos. And part of the chaos has to do with the fact that the entire North is ruled by this 15 year old boy. It's inter- that's an interesting way of thinking about it, Anthony. It, it raises the question that another one of Catelyn's vulnerabilities is not only is she adhering to the old way, as mm. has been discussed, but she seems to routinely underestimate the power of people's emotions. Again, mm. we're back to Frey, where she's like, okay, here are all these, he has all these grievances. Well, I'll do this, 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 and this, and this. But as we've discussed, that doesn't, that doesn't change the, the emotional reality. Hmm. And she does something similar with Rob. It's like, okay, well, he's going to, you know, uh, Ari's going to do this. She's going to marry him. And Rob, you're going to do this. And exactly, he's fi- she is, he's 15. She's surrounded by men. Hmm. She has, she knows how men operate. The, you know, the chances are good that he isn't hmm. going to be able to keep it in his pants, to quote Ian. Mm-hmm. So... She kind of discounts emotion on a regular basis, it seems to me. That's right. At the end of the chapter, Rob doesn't flinch. He doesn't pause. He says, do I have to make this choice? If you want to cross, yes. He says, then let's do it. And the fact that he doesn't pause, that he doesn't flinch, it says like she's never been prouder of him, right? Because, you know, he's evincing wisdom. Is that how we should read Rob? Or is he just going to say whatever he needs to say to get across that bridge? Because clearly he doesn't hold that promise as dearly as Kat would have. So is is she right to be proud of him? He makes he says yes without flinching. Is it because he's sort of the model of wisdom or is it because he's a 15-year-old boy and he was, he's just going to say whatever his mom wants to hear right now? I just was going to interject again. I, I, I'm still not completely convinced that regardless of what Rob does, Frey is not going to do what he does. And mm. I, I just keep thinking, was mm. was Rob's action, his betrayal of the of the promise, was that the cause of Frey's action or the excuse for it? And you know, you mentioned guests right. The idea that Frey is so bold, right? And and you know, even if in the South it's maybe not quite as adhered to everybody is still kind of shocked when that happens, right? Catelyn even feels safe walking in there thinking, oh, we, we've had the bread, we've had the salt, we're okay. Um, does, does that give Frey more license to say, well, maybe I can get by with breaking guests, right? Because Rob already betrayed me. Hmm. This thing gives me further ability to go ahead and pretty much do what I want to do anyway, regardless of what I told Cat. So again, certainly others could, could point to evidence sure. that this is not the case, but I just get this feeling that even if Rob had married the Frey daughter, I still think Frey would have looked for any excuse to just stick sure. it to the Tollies, right? To, yeah, to stick it to point. that lineage. And then the other thing I keep thinking about too, as we're talking is I may be remembering this incorrectly. So somebody else correct me if I'm wrong about this, but doesn't Rob decide to marry, is it Jen Poole? Um, it's not Jen Poole. Uh, who does he end up marrying? Um, 
in the show it's Talisa in the in the book it is someone named Jane. It's it's not Poole. It's not Poole. Jen or Jane or I, yeah, I'm so like sorry that. I can't remember her name, but it, it almost seems to me that he marries her almost out of spite for what Kat did in releasing Jamie. So I was thinking when you were talking, Stephanie, about emotion. I think you're right. Kat is very solid in this chapter. We have to do what we have to do. We can't let emotion get involved. I can't go to Bran like I want to because I think I can help Rob more. Yeah. I have to think very logically. And yet, as the chapters go on, she falls victim to that very emotion. Right. She stops thinking strategically. And she thinks in terms of Rob may hate me. He may even punish me for this. But if I want my girls back, I have to release Jamie. And I know right. what the consequences and, and think about the chain of events that happens after she releases Jamie, the car Starks are furious because they want vengeance for what Jamie did to their sons. And that just, it's like dominoes, right? Rob begins to lose the loyalty of his men. And that's really where the people like Bruce Bolton, aha, things are turning. I'm going to go with whoever I think <laughs> can give me the most power. That's what Frey starts to think. Oh, he's losing that support. I'm going to run over to the Lannisters, right? So you've got these actors like Theon, like Frey, like Bolton. They're just watching. They're watching to see how the winds blow. And when things start to fall apart for Rob, they attack. That's when they're able to move in on those weaknesses. Things are really never the same again, I think, both in terms of the loyalty that Rob used to have from his men after Jamie's released. Um, and the relationship between Kat and Jamie, or I'm sorry, Kat and Rob really suffers from that. And again, I may be wrong, but I got the feeling um, the last time I read those chapters that it's almost like Rob saying, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do because yeah. you have committed the greatest act of disloyalty to your son and, and really to your Lord, right? Ned's dead at this point. Um, that's just the feeling I got that it's, it's more of, and it's very reckless. It is the act of an immature son saying my mother did something I don't like. Guess what? It's um, always both. Just speaking as someone who <laughs> was a boy once, it's that this is attractive. The fact that it also gets back at mom or gets back at dad, that's icing, right? <laughs> so it's like, yes, of course he's, I, I looked, uh, looked up the name. It's Jane Westerling. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, it was a yeah, J something. Right. So he, of course he is in love with Jane Westerling. Right. But he's also pissed off at mom. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's such a great point, Jan, that that release of Jamie uh, based on the very emotional decision about the daughters. And that's interesting. You're right. That's just, that's such a huge decision mm -hmm. and turning point and has all of these kind of nuclear effects on everybody else that's a great point uh john and, and yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought of it that way myself i, I suppose I, I was thinking of it you know that the, uh, catlin uh makes the the comment several times in the chapter of is he a stark is he his father how much is he a stark and i, I think she the marriage arrangement and her reaction to his reaction uh you know when she tells mm. him that, that he's going to be married off um seems to confirm in her mind that he is a Stark, but actually it's not as straightforward as that. You know, there is perhaps a generational divide um, that the children are not necessarily their parents. And, and, and 
you know, the, the, the point I made already, that, that idea of Callan and, and Ned being kind of old-fashioned in their views, perhaps that hasn't extended to the children necessarily. Perhaps Rob is not quite as immersed in that or doesn't quite think that way. Um, mm. and, and so he, he's not his father in that, because his father would have absolutely have stuck to that, that oath, even if it was arranged for him. His, his sure. own personal sense of what's right and what's fair would have would have meant that he would have absolutely seen that through, and Rob doesn't do that. That's I think in that sense Rob isn't as far. Right. And everything you know, these all are decisions that we make. There's always sort of the decision you make before you're in love, and the decision you make after you're in love. It's like everything makes sense. Lot you know, your whole life is on track. You're making good life decisions, and then of course, you fall in love, and then logic just falls apart. And you start like rearranging things in your mind to make it make sense. I mean, it's a very human problem. Yeah. And of course, if you're the lord of a of a great region, uh, then your particular problems become a lot of people's problems, right? This is not just Rob's relationship with Cat; it's his relationship with the phrase and and the Tullys and all of that business, you know. Uh, Edmure has to marry a Frey now that Rob has decided he's not going to marry a Frey. You know, his as a lord, his decisions, his boyhood mistakes become a lot of people's mistakes. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, we're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was, and those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. There, w there was one thing I, I noted in this chapter that I really loved, and I tried to find it so I could read it to you, but I made the note. So... Cat just found out that her brother Edmure is cornered, 
and her husband is in jail and Rob is forced to one side of a river. And so all of this information comes to her and there's this line that said, a cold hand clutched her heart. And I thought, oh, this is this is a nice little foreshadowing to the Lady Stoneheart stuff. But but why does the cold hand clutch her heart? It's that someone has menaced her family. That is what's going to be her trigger. So if you start to menace Kat's family, she absolutely will go Lady Stoneheart on you. Much like a lot of the women, again, you know, the mothers in the story. I just I kept thinking of that again and again that. That is the trigger, right? Yeah. That they might negotiate and stay in the shadows and, and do their duty. But again, you mess with the kids. And a lot of men, I think, in this story underestimate how powerful right. um, the the need to protect the children is on the part of these women. You know, you and I, Anthony, talked about the Cersei-Ned conversation. Just the underestimating yes. of I will do, I don't care who I kill. I don't care who I step on the children will come first. Even right. if I have to, in Lysa's case, kill my own husband, the child will come first. Right. And in that conversation, Ned immediately thinks about Kat, right? He immediately thinks, oh, yeah, that's right. What would Kat do? Let's say, let's just Kat imagine do? what Kat would do. She might even do something worse. Like, he, he's immediately thinking, oh, I understand Cersei a little bit better now because I'm married to a woman who absolutely will... Uh, you know, protect, you know, protect her children in the same way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I think that that, I think in that way, Cersei helps us sort of understand Kat a little bit better in that chap in that chapter. And isn't it interesting that we're talking about motherhood in this chapter huh. where we've got this whole clan that are motherless because there's oh. Frey on to wife number eight. Right. So there's no mother taking care of all those <laughs> 150 people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. The Freys have problems because <laughs> of the mothers keep dying. Uh, <laughs> Is yeah. this an exaggeration, Ian? Uh, I was thinking <laughs> with Frey, it's like, okay, eight wives? Come on. Eight? What, really? Eight wives? Come on. It, it does suggest he's going through them at quite a rate um it, it does suggest although if they're if they're having so many children then uh i, I presume there's quite a few lost to childbirth um right i, I think eight, eight wives would be an extreme to be honest although you get you get you get several noble women and, and indeed queens who have you know three or four husbands um uh, they, they have the, the misfortune of uh -huh. either marrying older men or, or their husbands are, are killed or, or, or dying whatever circumstances and, and end up being married three or four times I'm trying desperately to remember the example and I typically can't but you know the, the, there's one example I looked at recently and, and yes it's like four marriages none of which seem to be happy <laughs> Just right. like, what, what a miserable existence right <laughs> and is this phrase kind of way of overcompensating right for his own lack of power and prestige well I'm just going to have as many children as I can right. and how many times does he say to Kat in that conversation you have how many sons? I'll give you a hundred of mine compared to your, right? He's, right. he's constantly bragging about how I basically have built my own army just by exploiting all of these young that's women right. and having all of these children. That's how I'm, you know, amassing power and right. showing my strength. So it's just yet another way for him to find that advantage. Yeah. The only Lord who can field an army out of his own breaches. Mm -hmm. is what yes. Father's but, but also, 
It all sounds so petty as well because it's it's meaningless. You know, he compares himself to Tywin Lannister. He's like, oh, it doesn't doesn't matter about all his gold. I've got all these sons. Yes. <laughs> doesn't matter. And yet, that's his problem, right? That's you know, he he thinks that that's going to bring him political uh, mm-hmm. capital, right? Yeah. You know, I'll have a bunch of sons. I'll make a bunch of alliances. I'm going to use these sons for political capital, and yet he can't do it. He can't. He he has too many to actually use these these children in the way he wants to use them. Catelyn makes that point herself when she says, you know, he's one of his daughters, one of his sons is married to a Lannister daughter, uh-huh. but in the end, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. You know, it doesn't mean he's more loyal to right. the Lannisters or, or more dangerous because of that, because because Free himself doesn't necessarily. Matter. So this brings up a very uh, I underlined a word that I had never seen before in this chapter, and that is the word grand bastard. <laughs> this is uh, only for Walder Frey. This is a word that was invented for Walder Frey. That he doesn't just have bastards; <laughs> he has grand bastards. Uh. And I started to look it up a little bit, and I thought, no, this is uh, this is Martin invented this for, for Walder Frey. <laughs> so anyway, I like that. Uh, notable introductions in this chapter. This uh, title, Lord of the Crossing. We have not seen this before. Speaking of grand bastards, we meet uh, Riger and Ronald Rivers for the first time. And we hear Loris Tyrell called Sir Daisy for the first time. And I think because we've all seen the show, Loris's sexuality is sort of on the surface. But in the books, there are just these little hints that suggest that some people read him as effeminate. And you read closely and you think, oh, yeah, no, Loris and Renly might have something happening. But it's all it's all very subtle. And this is one of those hints that the that the Frey boys have invented this name for Loris or Daisy. Uh, so I thought that was a, an interesting little note. Yeah. Show differences. Um, some of Kat's words are given to one of the northern lords. She says this. In the book, she says, expect nothing of Walder Frey and you'll never be surprised. Right. So that's an interesting reading of Walder Frey. But in the show, they they give that line to, you know, one of the bannermen. Did you notice any any differences that, that seemed interesting or notable? So I, I don't remember anybody else. No, I'm afraid I forgot to look. Sorry. <laughs> OK, so here's a major this is a sort of a context thing. But this scene where Kat goes in to negotiate with Walder Frey, this happens in an episode titled Baylor, which is season one, episode nine, completely overshadowed by one of the major events in television history. Mm-hmm. Ned gets his head chopped off. And so because that overshadows everything... There are other things about that episode that are that are actually really important. We actually get a setup for the Red Wedding in that episode. But Ned's demise, surprising, shocking demise, really become it really eclipses all of those other conversations. Yeah. Uh, so I, I noted. I went back and I, I watched it yesterday. What, what an amazing moment! What an amazing show! Uh, it's just that first season was was remarkable. I remember we had we had started watching the series. Um, it had been out maybe two or three years, uh-huh. 
And as so often happens, I don't start watching a show until my students say, I can't believe you haven't seen this. Why aren't you watching this? (laughs) And so I, uh, this is back when we had DVDs. I had a student who, after I admitted to a a group that, sorry, I've heard of Game of Thrones, but I've never watched it. He actually came in the next day, handed me his entire DVD collection to that Mm -hmm. point and said, you must start watching this show. So my husband and I started watching in bits and pieces and that episode came on and I was wide awake. I was really into it. For some reason, I fell asleep (laughs) and I fell asleep just as they were leading Ned out. And I remember waking up and I looked at my husband and I said, oh my God, did they, no, did they kill Ned Stark? Right. Surely not. And he said, yeah. yes, they killed Ned Stark. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, I can't believe that was the moment I fell asleep. Uh-huh. Um, so I kind of had to you know, rewind it and, and watch it again. Are we sure that they actually killed Ned Stark? Um, and of course, uh-huh. you know, it was such a shock not knowing anything about the story really at that point. You, you think Sean Bean, yeah. he's going to be the star of this whole show. And he's, he's Ned, you know, he's, he's pivotal to what's going on. And that was kind of our first hint with Martin that you can't trust that Uh just because you have a main character, this character will survive. And so then the rest of the time you're watching, you're just thinking at some point, your most beloved characters don't get too attached because at some point they may just be lopped off. That's right. And that was the case. Martin, (laughs) Martin really takes the kill your darlings advice to writers seriously. He's like, okay, I'm going to kill them all. (laughs) And being a writer, Stephanie, what was your relationship to that, Stephanie? Because you're, you're aware of these plot devices and these, these tropes. I mean, were you prepared at all for that? Or were you shocked like so many others? I was very shocked by it. Um, but it's interesting, Anthony, that, you, that thank you for reminding us kind of how that episode works, because the um, the showrunners are actually including the chapter after ours, the, yeah. you know, the where because uh, the chapter a- after the one we're looking at is the Jon Snow chapter yeah. where he he gets the sword right. and then has the conversation with Father Eamon, which is also back to Ian's point about loyalty right yes loyalty versus love loyalty versus yeah. emotion john yeah, wants love to leave. is the death of lo- right. what yeah. is it? love is the death of duty something like yes that. yes right yes and john makes the right choice there right he doesn't he's not led by his emotions he stays he mm-hmm. honors his commitment to his brothers which says a lot about what we're going to learn about john going forward right. so now that we're in the thick of it and maybe this will be we can wrap up on this one but i'm curious to hear you reflect on this it's hard to find the climax of this book. It was not hard to find the climax of season one. It was absolutely it was Ned got his head chopped off. That is the climax of the show. In the book, we see that event from Arya's perspective, and Arya doesn't see the event. In the book, Arya comes into the courtyard. She's witnessing what's happening on the stage, and... Yorin grabs her and covers her eyes so she can't see what actually happens. So she hears it, bring me his head. But it's almost an off-screen event. We later hear Sansa reflect on the event, but it's a very odd way to portray the climax of the story. And that almost makes me think, and maybe in the book, the climax is when Littlefinger puts the knife to Ned's throat and says, I told you not to trust me. 
because you know that that you know right before this chapter, Ned gets his last chat, his last POV chapter. Ned is like out of the story basically at this point as a POV character. I don't know how do how do we measure like maybe this is just maybe it's too arbitrary to to find one or whatever. But is it really the climax? Is Ned's beheading really the climax if we don't actually see it happen in the book? I think what we're seeing is the in is the big difference between visual storytelling and text. Um, in in television, in particular, um, no matter how avant-garde the TV show is, there's a you know there's a narrative arc that you have to have, and there has there kind of has to be a climax. Right. Um, particularly, and this again, the show was made a few years ago. We haven't gotten to some of the more interesting um, TV shows like The Good Place and um, TV shows that kind of resist those moves. But so he, um, the showrunners are going to give you the big the the big climax hmm. um i'm as to the book that's an interesting question as to as as to what the kind of the big climax in this book is it might be linger a little finger saying um i told you not to trust me um i'm not sure what do other folks think i think um, I, I think i think the way you describe it, anthony in terms of the tv show i think yeah that that was it was obviously set up. Ned's death was meant to be the, the pivotal mm-hmm. moment, and, and yes, as, as Stephanie said, that you know, uh, killing killing your main character and things. Although I suppose I was going to say we should have known that was coming because Sean Bean always dies. That's um, true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> so true. We should have known. That, I had but, totally um, forgotten that. You're exactly right. Poor Sean. But no, it, it does. Well, I'm sure he gets paid rather well if I get killed off a lot. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of the books, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, is it actually this this part of the storyline at all? Is it not? Is it not Daenerys? Is it not yeah, Daenerys' maybe. thread that's, that's that's actually setting things up? Is the kind of you know her resurrection and uh, and and that's the, yeah. the end point, and that sets us up for what's to come because actually her story will really kick into gear right in the next books um and and it's actually not perhaps on on the west sure so. yeah no or you could look at sort of john snow saving lord mormont from the zombie or whatever yeah it's like a little mag- magic trick to make you look at ned really long and really you know make ned interesting enough so that you're not actually reading the story for the sort of ice and fire big big narrative arc issues but I almost see that those those issues, and maybe it is Daenerys's resurrection. Maybe that's a good point. But I almost see that the that this book is almost a setup for that longer Song of Ice and Fire stuff. I, I feel like in this book, absolutely, Ned can be thought of as the main character. He has the most words. He has the most chapters. He's he's the detective of the detective novel. That's that's what Ned is meant to be. So. Yeah, I, I want to go back to the ending and then I want to maybe address your question yeah. to Anthony, because um, in rereading this, those last two chapters of this book, wow, I even wrote in the margin, what an ending, I know, right? Because you've got yeah. the great keen in the North moment, right? Where it's just really uh-huh. setting Rob up almost to be kind of here's Ned's successor. If we've lost Ned, uh-huh. surely in the next book, Rob, but even Rob is not the centerpiece of the next book. We, we right. take a different yeah. turn, which... I remember the first time I, I read these thinking, oh, where's where's the big Rob centrism that I kind of expected right. in the in the next book? And he's always yeah. kind of a shadowy character. 
Uh-huh. You know, it, it, very different from the show, right? Where Rob is very centered. In the books, he's always kind of seen through other people's perspective and point mm-hmm. of view. Um, but I, I appreciate what you're saying, Anthony, about climax, because you're right in going back and looking for that chapter where Ned is beheaded in the book, uh-huh. you almost can't find it. Yeah. You have to really look closely <laughs> to say, oh, there's the moment Ned is beheaded because uh-huh. it's not I had to reread it a couple times. I thought, wait, no, you 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 missed it. You missed it. Yeah, it's an aria chapter. You're right. (laughs) It's not even Ned's perspective. It's told from her perspective. So Uh I think you're right in the sense that, really, once Littlefinger betrays him, puts the knife to his neck, you do see Ned kind of receding Uh in terms of point of view, in terms of importance. It's almost, and and maybe I'm saying this because I know in hindsight what happens. But it's almost kind of predetermined at that point that Ned made a huge mistake in in calculation. He confronted Cersei. He trusted Littlefinger Uh to fatal mistakes. And now it's almost kind of inevitable, right, what will happen to Ned, even if you're still shocked that, oh, wow, they they killed off a major character. Mm -hmm. But he does kind of fade after that point and others come to prominence. I think kind of in his place. It's interesting that Arya is the point of view for when Ned is killed maybe foreshadowing how key she will become to right. the story. Sure. I, I think this is, despite everything that happens, this is still largely the kind of time of peace. Uh, this is, uh, sure. apart from, you know, armies wandering around <laughs> towards the end, but it's still peacetime in Westeros. Um, yeah. It's all going to go to hell after this. Yeah. <laughs> the gloves are going to come off and the rest of the narrative is through an extended period of war. Yes. Um, and, and there is a, I think you can see when you compare the events, even though there's plenty of blood and, and violence in, in, in the first series and the first book, but but it's nothing compared to what's going to come after. Yeah. yeah, that reminded me of the other time. I mean, there's a, there's a many moments in this story when the fates of many are decided by a teenage boy, right? Joffrey's just as bringing me his head. And what, what can you like nothing can be done at this point you put a kid on the throne and if he says bring me his head that in that moment you have to chop off the guy's head and of course that that, like you said ian it throws everything into chaos in the same way that you know later on uh, rob will decide that he's going to marry for love and that throws everything into chaos yeah. Do you think Jamie sets the tone, right? When he says, right before he throws Bran out the window, the things we do for love. Right. And that so motivates so uh-huh. many of the characters. I'm thinking of Drogo too, right? Yeah. Where he is motivated. He's He seems more loyal toward the end in pleasing Daenerys. And she was right, of course. They shouldn't have been doing what they were uh-huh. doing and pillaging and, and abusing these women. But his blood riders look at him and say, you're listening to her mm-hmm. over your own men. And that's his kind of fatal flaw. Now, of right. course, it sets into motion what she then goes on to do. Um, right. But he, even he, here's Drogo, this powerful warrior, in the end is motivated more by love. And it's it what leads to his downfall. That's right. That's why he decides to go to conquest in Westeros. He yes. wants. He doesn't want to go across the sea. But as <laughs> soon as someone attempts to assassinate his wife, that's it. it's that moment of fire in his belly that makes him think, "You now you're going to see... And even Danny in that chapter, someone just woke the dragon. Like she uses that phrase of herself again, yeah. youthful, impetuous, youthful decisions made in like a, a moment of passion, yes. uh, changed the fate of so many people. Thank you all so much for this little experiment. I just felt like so many things could have gone wrong. And the fact that <laughs> nothing went wrong, I'm kind of amazed. 
so I just I feel really grateful to you and and for this whole thing actually working. My this is fun. gratitude. We should thank do it again. Anthony. Thank you, Ian yeah. and Jan. Yeah, this was yes. really fun. Thanks, everybody. Awesome. Thank you very much.